Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week in Kerrang! Back Issues we'll be looking at issue number 587, March the 9th, 1996, pence every Wednesday. You'll all be very pleased to hear that Bon Jovi are not on the cover, yet yeah, they're still mentioned on the cover, of course. So the cover stars for this week are Metallica, studio exclusive Metallica. We've heard the new LP and it's metal licking good. Plus, Bon Jovi drama, why has John been hypnotised, who cares. Paradise Lost, 2000 mile Aussie biker marathon, plus exclusive UK date. Terrorvision, wicked new album. Plus, as well, Smashing Pumpkins, Bruce Dickinson, Silverchair, Dog Eat Dog and Sepultura. If you would like to get in contact with us here at Kerrang Back Issues, we welcome all feedback, good and great. <laughs> I've never actually had bad feedback, thankfully. Uh, if you would like to get in contact with us, we can be contacted via Instagram, Kerrang Back Issues, Twitter, Kerrang Pod, and email, Issues at gmail.com. If you would like to leave a review for this podcast, then please go ahead and do that. It really helps us out. It uh, pushes us uh, up the charts which means that other people can find this podcast. Also, if you know anyone that you think would be interested in this podcast, then please do pass it along to them. You'll notice that I don't have adverts on the podcast, so I don't make any money from this. Uh, the plan was never to make money from this. I just do it as a little side quest in my life, just to, uh, yeah, keep myself. I mean, it started because it was the lockdown, and um, it was like, what was it, Christmas 2020, going into 21, I think it was, and yeah, I was just, you know, I needed something to do just to stay sane. I think most of us, I think most of us were looking for something to do at that point. So I started this podcast. So yeah, it's never been about the money. Um, saying that, who knows, maybe in the future I'll bang some adverts for Simba, Simba mattresses or whatever the, whatever the most popular adverts are on here. Who knows? I mean, at the moment, I can't be bothered to go down that route because uh, I don't care about making about 30 pence in ad revenue, not that bothered. Just doing it because I love doing it and I love hearing from people as well. So yeah, if you want to get in touch to chat about The Rock, um, then please do. I mean, um, the other week, it's about a week or two ago now, um, I posted up about uh, Roots being released and people were sending in, their, this was on Instagram, people were sending in their memories of that album and their time and their favourite eras of Sepultura and it's great. I love hearing about that stuff. My my journey with Sepultura was I got into them at KSAD and it absolutely blew rock open for me. It was the heaviest thing I'd ever heard. Uh, I think I've said it on this podcast before. My cousin thought they were Satanists. <laughs> and I was like, uh, excuse me, they're not Satanists. They're singing out politics. Thank you very much. They just sound like Satanists. And yeah, I think at that point I was listening to Guns, <clears throat> excuse me, Guns N' Roses and Metallica and Extreme and bands like that. But I always veered towards their heavier songs. So yeah, hearing Sepultura for the first time, absolutely blew my teenage ear drums apart. So let's crack on with this week's issue of Kerrang! So this issue was created with the following stimulants. Sepultura's blistering London Astoria 2 show, phone calls to the office from Reef, Terrorvision and Fear Factory, a glimpse of Pandora Peroxide's boobs, see page 10, a brilliant feature on streakers in Total Sport magazine, Liz Evans's ace noodled specs, a pair of Supergrass comedy sideburns, Honest Bob. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Bad news! Bad news! Bad news! Starting this week where we always begin news. 
Rage Against the Machine are at the centre of controversy this week over their uncompromising new single, Balls on Parade. The song features the word fuck in its opening line and Radio 1 have already said it will not be playlisted in its current form. Now Rage's record company Epic looks set to issue an edited version of the song in an attempt to get the record, uh, the band's first single in three years, onto the radio. The song, which is taken from the band's eagerly awaited new album Evil Empire, kicks off with a bizarre line, get the fuck off the commode. Epic are anxious to avoid a repetition of the 1993 killing in the name of fiasco when the Hit Rage song was banned by Radio 1 because of the line fuck, you I won't do what you tell me. The song was inadvertently played by ex-Radio 1 DJ Bruno Brooks on his weekly chart rundown and is said to have caused a deluge of complaints. Rage Against the Machine, vocalist Zach De La Rocha, guitarist Tom Moreno, drummer Brad Wilk and bassist Timmy C are currently holed up in LA, working on a video for Balls on Parade. They have now completed work on Evil Empire which features the following track listing, People of the Sun, Without a Face, Wind Below, Vietnam, Revolver, Snake Charmer, Rolling Down Rodeo, Year of the Boomerang, Timey and Balls on Parade. Evil Empire, which was produced by Brendan O'Brien of Pearl Jam fame, will be released on April the 15th. In addition to this, Karen can reveal that Rage looks set to tour the UK this spring. Sources close to Rage Into Machine revealed this week that May dates were being penciled in. The band's first shows on these shores since their one-off anti-Nazi league benefit show at London's Brixton Academy in September 93. Sepultura have apologised for the cancellation of their one-off terrorist show which led to a number of public disturbances in central London. The Brazilian metal stars whose new album Roots was released last week had originally planned their secret London show for Sunday February the 25th, but the gig was cancelled at the last minute after singer Max Cavalera contracted a throat infection. Fans were informed of the cancellation by a sign on the door of the venue. The LA2 in Charing Cross Road and many decided to remain in London until midnight to see the remaining three members of Sepultura Igor Cavalera, Paolo Jr. and Andres Kisser at a late night sign-in session. Trouble fled when bored fans got rowdy and a small minority held bottles at passing traffic. When the window of a bus was shattered, the police were called in and two fans were subsequently arrested. They were detained overnight at Marlebone Station for being drunk and disorderly. No one was actually charged, said a police spokesman. The two people in question were let go the following morning after being cautioned about their behaviour. In a handwritten letter faxed to Karang, Max Cavalera says, My apologies for cancelling this show on Sunday. My throat was really fucked up. We played Belgium the night before and I was really frustrated with the show because I could only sing half of the show. And when we arrived in England, I couldn't even fucking talk. So I knew I wasn't going to be able to give the Sepultura show you deserve. Sepultura eventually went ahead with a sold-out gig on February the 28th. See full review on page 20. And see page 37 to see if you're this week's face in the crowd. Also, watch out for the Seps appearing on ITV's Hotel Babylon on March the 15th. Slayer's Jeff Hanneman has lashed out at a new generation of US punk bands. What passes for punk rock nowadays is just wimpy pop, the guitarist spits. It's so inoffensive, so pussy, there's no attitude. Sometimes the music is okay, but the singers sound like old women whining on. Why can't we all get along, that sort of shit? That's not what punk rock is all about. Hanneman's attack comes as the Los Angeles thrash legends prepare to release Selected and Exhumed, their album of punk rock covers, and the last to feature recently departed drummer Paul Bostaff. The album sees Slayer performing classics by Straight Edge's Minor Threat, punk godfather Iggy Pop, and crossover punk's suicidal tendencies amongst others. It also features three Slayer originals, two written by Hanneman over 10 years ago. Hanneman also hinted that Slayer may do selected European shows in the summer to introduce new drummer John Dette to fans. The new Skinsman recently joined Slayer from Testament and has yet to play with the band. 
Pearl Jam frontman Eddie Vedder shocked the audience at this year's Grammy Awards when he said his band's success in the best hard rock album category meant nothing to him. Collecting the award for Vitology at the ceremony last week in LA, Vedder stated, I don't think this means anything. My dad died recently and he would have liked it, so I guess it's good for something. Pearl Jam received just one award at the Grammys, and a posthumous award went to Kurt Cobain for Nirvana's MTV Unplugged in New York album, which bagged top honours in the Best Alternative Rock Performance category. Other winners on the night included Nine Inch Nails, who pipped Metallica, White Zombie, Megadeth and Guar in their heavy metal performance category, and Alanis Morissette walked off with the Album of the Year award for Jagged Little Pill. The multi-platinum Canadian also came up trumps in three other categories. Kiss created a stir when the original lineup in full makeup presented Hootie and the Blowfish with the award for Best Pop Performance. Misery Loves Company, the Swedish industrial band, will go down in history on March 25th when they become the first full-on metal band ever to release a CD Plus track, a personal computer video cut tagged onto a normal compact disc. The CD Plus track is included on new 7-track mini-album Happy and can be accessed on most PCs. The rest of Happy can be played on any normal CD player. Our record company Earache came up with the idea and we've just gone along with it, owns up Misery Loves Company vocalist Patrick Warren. The CD Plus track has photos, discography and the promo video for the song My Mind Still Speaks. We seem to be doing a lot of things first. We're apparently the first metal band to have an official release in China. Misery are about to embark on their first ever tour of the States, but Wirren seems less than enthusiastic. Well, we do want to play over there, but the timing is a little off, he admits. We've just gone into the studio to start working on songs for the next album, but now we've got to take another break to go on the road in the States. John Bon Jovi is to enlist the services of a hypnotist in a desperate attempt to try and locate a Bon Jovi lyric book lost on the set of his new film, The Leading Man. Frantic John has looked everywhere for the blue book which contains lyrics and song ideas for the next Bon Jovi album, the follow-up to last year's hugely successful These Days, and has finally consented to hypnosis in a bid for vital clues. John believes the book went missing from his trailer on the set of The Leading Man and says he last saw the book shortly before he attended the recent Brit Awards ceremony in London's Earls Court. If anyone comes across the blue book, can they please contact Dawn Bartlett at the Mercury Records press office? on 0181-910-5737. Terrorvision celebrated their biggest ever chart success with a date on ITV's Richard and Judy show. The Britrock stars who entered the UK singles chart at number five with Perseverance were invited onto this morning to play their hit song as the final credit sequence role. Hey rock and roll, a joke TV guitarist Mark Yates prior to the band's daytime Terrorvision debut. It should be a good laugh. Terrorvision have been on the high since last Sunday's chart rundown, although Mark missed the big news because he was out in his garden. I were working on Makari, says. When I went back inside, the bloody show had finished, so I had to phone up Terrorvision drummer Shetty and ask him where we were. He were chuffed as fuck. He were peeking. We had a bottle of champagne in, so we downed that, and we all went out to this dub reggae club in Bradford and got completely shit-faced. Two days before the single ended the charts, Terrorvision played Perseverance on Chris Evans' Channel 4 show, TFI Friday. Says Mark, it were great. It were live though, and I think I had a bit too much free wine beforehand, so I didn't play the best I could. I think I were a bit worse for wear. Terrorvision spent uh, part of last week in London working on the remix of their next single celebrity hit list, one of the many standout tracks on the band's imminent new album, Regular Urban Survivors. Napalm Death came face to face with a gun-toting fan during a recent show in San Antonio, Texas. The gunman was caught inside the venue brandishing a loaded gun, though fortunately no shots were fired. The man was questioned by police and removed from the venue. Police also provided an escort for the rather shaken napalm after the show. 
Napalm will hopefully find things more sedate when they head out on the road in the UK next month. They play a series of dates beginning at Buckley Tivoli April 4th. This is followed by Wolverhampton Wolfron Hall 5th, Bradford Rio 6th, Bristol Beer Keller 7th, London Charing Cross Road LA 2 8th, and Reading Alley Cat Live 9th. Support act for all the shows will be Crowbar and Swedish metal band Facedown. The latter released an album titled Minefield through Roadrunner on April the 15th. American news, and we start this week with Don K in New York. Are Pearl Jam about to jump ship and sign with a new label? Incredible as it may seem, that was being rumoured following the departure of Michael Goldstone from the band's label Epic. Who is Michael Goldstone? He's the man who signed Pearl Jam plus Radiance the Machine and more recently Dirt Merchants and Handsome, the latter featuring former Helmet guitarist Peter Mangetti. Goldstone has just quit the company to join DreamWorks, the record label owned by the mighty trio of David Geffen, movie mogul Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg. However, Goldstone won't start at DreamWorks until the middle of next year when his contract with Epic runs out. So where do Pearl Jam stand in all of this? Well, they've still got a lengthy contract with Epic and have no reason to be dissatisfied with the company who have accommodated the band's every eccentric desire. Of course, selling a gazillion albums every time out makes those desires go down a lot easier. Also re-entering the A&R Wars is Tom Zutout, the man who signed Motley Crue to Elektra and Guns N' Roses to Geffen. Among others, Zutout left Geffen last year and resurfaced recently with a new label of his own called The Enclave, and one of his first signings at English all-girl punk band Fluffy. This week's wanderings brought us down to Brownies on Avenue A for a look at Mars Needs Women, a New Jersey punk pop band with some charisma and energy, but a lack of truly intriguing songs. Next night at Brownies found Sufferbus on the bill, a more than capable alternative act from the wilds of Manhattan, Kansas, reminiscent of a somewhat poppier sound garden with a brace of solid songs. The band's New York showcase attracted label spires from Atlantic, A&M, Alamo, Sounds among others. Despite an obvious set of nerves, Sufferbus, who also made a splash at last year's Foundations Forum in LA, held their own, leaving the crowd buzzing. Last week, we also caught Drill at Coney Island High, newly signed to Deviant Records, distributed by A&M. The band suffered from a lousy sound mix and also a relative lack of experience, but singer Lucia is a definite star, capable of both a seductive croon and a blood-curdling howl. Keep an eye out for them. More club-hopping news next week. We now join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Soundgarden have already made history in Seattle with their new album, even though it hasn't actually been finished yet. The as yet untitled LP will be the last to be recorded at Bad Animal Studio, which recently announced it would be closing some of its music facilities. Once Bad Animals closes down, it will certainly mark the end of an era in Seattle. Consider some of the bands who've recorded or mixed albums there. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Hull, New Young and Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam are set to enter the computer age. The five-piece, currently in Stone Gossard's Studio Litho in Seattle working on their next album, are to be featured on a CD-ROM scheduled for release later this year. This isn't a Pearl Jam release, but they're included on a CD-ROM being put together by Neil Young, featuring footage from all eight of his annual Bridge School benefit shows, and the Seattle superstars have appeared at these gigs. The CD-ROM will be put out by GTE Interactive. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. 
When the absolutely fabulous Green Day made an appearance on the ultra-famed US TV talk program The Tonight Show in Los Angeles, I thought it was my civic duty to attend. So a fiendish plot was hatched, and along with three friends I prepared to crash the show set and lie in wait for our fave trio of young punks. Actually, it was easier said than done, but once we did infiltrate the set, security guards in TV land they're called pages moved us from one area to another, continually shooing us away. Finally, we found ourselves in the hallway behind the main set where we could watch the action on TV monitors. As horrifying as it sounds, backstage really was where all the real action took place. Each guest was shepherded past us before going in front of the cameras, including Green Day. We were the first to see Trey Cool's fabulous green hair sprayed straight up and Mike Dirt's cool suit. But our first celebrity sighting was old crooner Neil Diamond. Now, the ingenious people on The Tonight Show thoughtfully provided some green AstroTurf type stuff for the trio to play on, no doubt because of their name. But despite all this loving care and attention and sales of more than 15 million albums worldwide, the band looked edgy when they passed us in the hall. Once on stage though, you couldn't detect any nerves, they whipped through a version of Brain Stew after which Trey Cool uh, took off tearing into the audience as he likes to do on TV shows. Before the day could rip into their second scheduled song Jaded, then Dirt suddenly disappeared from in front of the cameras. And in doing so, leaving poor old Billy Joe Armstrong alone plucking on his guitar as host Jay Leno came over to shake hands with the band. At the end of the show, after a three minute commercial break, Leno thanked all his guests who were sitting side by side in big chairs. But when he got around to Green Day, Trey Ever the Clown took a pratfall straight back, chair and all, as Mike and Billy Joe stared straight ahead, not reacting at all. Poor Leno didn't know what to think. What the camera didn't catch was what happened next. As Trey got up and ran around backstage yelling, Vibrator, Vibrator, we didn't think it could actually get much better than that. But as we were leaving, we saw the band hanging around their black limo. It looked as if they'd been locked out of it. Classic slapstick. That'll teach them not to use a green limo. We laughed all the way home, pleased with the night's adventures, only regretting that one of us didn't go for a stage dive on live TV when we had the chance. Maybe next time. Do you know where you are? All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of the fucking jungle, baby! On location, and this week's silver chair meet Kerrang! competition winners in New York. Saturday evening, backstage in New York's Madison Square Gardens Arena, silver chair frontman Daniel Johns is starting to suffer from that classic teenage syndrome, boredom. The Chili Peppers have to be the longest soundchecking band ever, he grins. Chair manager John Watson points out that the Red Hot Chili Peppers, whom Silverchair are supporting on this leg of the US tour, don't actually play their own sound checks these days. The crew do it for them, he explains. Really? Fuck, gasps Daniel. You can almost hear the cogs whirring. Can we do that? He finally asks. The manager comically rolls his eyes. Meanwhile, our two lucky Kerrang! competition winners are lingering outside in the corridor. 15-year-old Gemma Layton from Wolverhampton won its all-expenses-paid four-day trip to New York staying at an enormous roomed hotel by Central Park, even though she lied and told us she was 16. She's brought along her pal Ella Smith and they're looking as pleased as young ladies with special reasons to be pleased. They've already seen the sights, goggled from the top of the Empire State Building, done Times Square and quite possibly bought the t-shirt. Generous Columbia Records man Paul Bursch has even bought the New York edition of Monopoly for each and their families. The girls are fans of both Silverchair and the Chilies, although, to be frank, they're rather more fanatical about the latter. The plan is for them to meet Silverchair and conduct a mini-interview. Gemma admits that she is cacking herself. The poor thing's gone all red. You can imagine, then, how deeply crimson Gemma becomes when she spies Chili's frontman Anthony Kiedis 
hovering at the other end of a corridor. She excitedly asks for a pen and paper in case her hunky hero walks into the autograph zone. In a bizarre moment, Kida strolls calmly past the girls then stops dead. He turns, retraces a couple of steps and extends his hand to them. So what does Kidis think of Silverchair? I've only seen them play one song, he admits, because they play while I'm warming up. But I was amazed by their confidence and their ability. May they live long and prosper. With that, the frontman wanders off again, leaving a shaken Gemma to babble. I nearly passed out then. But the experience isn't over yet, because it's time for them to conduct this week's Silverchair Kerrang! interview. After introductions are made, everyone takes a seat and the tape recorder is switched on. Here's how it goes. Gemma, what do you think of America? Daniel, cold, boring, and it smells like shit. Ella, did you expect to be as famous as you are? Ben, no, we didn't even expect to get a CD out. Gemma, your song Israel's Son is supposed to have influenced an American 17-year-old to go on a killing spree. What do you think about it? Daniel, ah, that's just some lawyer trying to pin it on somebody and it just happened to be us. Ben, the case got laughed out of court. An imminent NTV interview means that this chat must cease. All that's left to do tonight is see the show and have a few drinks. Both Gemma and Ella admit to being surprised at how powerful Silverchair's teenage kicks sound live, which is just what they'll tell their jealous schoolmates back in Wolverhampton. We now come to this week's cover stars Metallica. Time gentlemen please. Everyone is screaming at them to finish their new LP yet Metallica are boozing in a bar. Well, they would be, wouldn't they? Because according to Paul Elliott, they're making the best rock album of the 90s. Lars Ulrich's fists are flailing, his feet thumping the floor, face screwed up, eyes shut tight. But the Metallica drummer has no sticks in his hands and there's not a drum within 30 feet. Lars is bouncing around in an easy chair in a studio control room. A new Metallica song recorded just days ago is playing on that tape, throbbing from four speakers that look like they came off somebody's 10-year-old hi-fi yet loud enough to make your teeth and balls if you've got any ache. Lars is so psyched up he just can't keep still. He punches and stomps every beat of the song and mounts the words as frontman James Hetfield roars, damn it all to hell again and kiss your ass goodbye. The track ends with Hetfield laughing and sneering, bitch. That's what he wants to call the song. Lars collapses back in his chair with a shit-eating grin on his face. This, he says, is the new rock and roll Metallica. Still heavy, very heavy, but with a little more groove to it. Looser, Hetfield calls it. I like the word greasy, says Lars. It's certainly different. This new Metallica album. But one thing remains the same above all, Metallica are still the metal band. As cigar-smoking, pimp-style guitarist Kurt Hammett puts it, we are the man. In June, when this motherfucker of a record is released, no other metal band matters. Five years on from the Black Album, a year after Donington, Metallica are back. And here is where it all begins. Uh, at the plant recording studio in South Salito, Northern California. Take the coastal highway from San Francisco across the famous stately Golden Gate Bridge and pretty soon you'll come to South Salito, a quietish place, part sleepy fishing port, part light industrial backwater, livened up by uh, a few notorious, really dangerous housing projects. Each member of Metallica lives within an hour's drive of here. The plant is hidden away on a large industrial estate. It doesn't look like much from the outside, but once inside, the studio's history slaps you in the face. Everywhere there are gold and platinum discs. A toilet's walls are decorated with a pencil mural naming all the artists who've worked here. The Rolling Stones, Neil Young, Fleetwood Mac, The Doors. Something to think about when you're taking a dump. Incidentally, Metallica's on-the-bog reading includes Playboy and Men Only, plus the usual rock mags. 
The run Metallica are recording in is the usual mess of gear, amp stacked high, mics sticking up all over the shop, guitars on stands, flat cases, effects pedals, and mile upon mile of thick cable. Lars's drum kit takes up a big space in one corner. One of the kick drums is labelled Rockhead. It belongs to Bob Rock, producer of the new Metallica album and of the Black album. Surprisingly, Rock isn't hunched over the mixing desk 20 hours a day, even as the album nears completion. He pops in late one night on his way back from a shopping trip and disappears again after cracking jokes for a few minutes. This is typical of the vibe around the studio, around Metallica and their producer, relaxed and confident. God knows how Rock makes head or tail of the studio's enormous mixing desk. It's covered in switches, lights and faders, hundreds of the damn things. Weirdest of all is a row of buttons right in the middle of the console marked grunge, balls, funk, beer, powder, wetness, certain death and what the fuck. Expect some bizarre surprises on this new Metallica album. For starters, there's a blues song. Like most rock bands, Metallica first accessed blues music via the brash heavy rock of Led Zeppelin. So maybe it was inevitable that Metallica's blues tune would echo the spacey riffing of the Wonton song from Zeppelin's rambling double album Physical Graffiti, released all of 20 years ago. Their Zepp number is slow and shuffling and roomy enough for Kurt Hammett to open his shoulders and loose off some spooky FX laden licks. James Hetfield delights in howling, oh poor twisted me. This blues track has no title yet. The same goes for every new song. They have working titles, nicknames, nothing more. Even the album is untitled, a mere three months before its release, which is putting all the design and marketing people in a cold sweat. The band are not worried. They'll make their deadline, no problem. Kirk Hammett enters the control room, puffing on a fat cigar, as Lars slips a new tape into the DAP machine and queues up another four songs. One is called 2x4, at least for now. Metallica played it at Donington last year. Remember the chugging boogie number with the same kind of tempo as Pantera's Walk? It sounds twice as good the second time around. The next song could be called The House That Jack Built. The rough track begins with Lars counting out 1, 2, 3, 4 before stroking a few cymbals. A number of tracks have rough edges like this. Band members talking, guitars feeding back on the fade. Some of these imperfections may be erased when Bob Rock cleans up prior to the final mixes. But overall, this Metallica album will have a dirtier kind of sound. The House That Jack Built mixes classic Metallica with a new rock and roll Metallica. The key riff is a trademark staccato fire Hetfield cruncher home to a perfect cutting edge. But James's vocal for the first couple of verses is eerily soft, while Kurt's uh, talk box guitar is plain trippy. And the vocals on the next track are even weirder. James starts off talking in a low growl, then double tracks over the top with a twisted melody. Beneath it all beats another brilliantly simple hard riff. James and Lars call this one Believe. At one point, James sings about The Cure. The final track has a working title of Moldy. Because it sounds like Bob Mould, like Sugar or Husker Do, ex uh, explains Lars. Moldy could be the biggest song on the album. It's arguably the catchiest tune the band have ever recorded, even if the melody is broken up halfway through by a snarling riff. When James delivers the hook line, Mama, they tried to break me, you can almost hear 70,000 voices singing along with him at Donington 2000. If it's a single, it will go top five. The new Enter Sandman, possibly. The finished album will feature a total of 14 songs, but there's another 14 in the can. With so much strong material ready for release, there's talk of two Metallica albums inside the next 12 months. However, for 1996, Metallica figure that 14 new songs is enough. As Lars and Kurt head back to the studio's lounge come kitchen to join James and bassist Jason Newstead for dinner, their heads are swimming with ideas for the songs. This, they say, is the difficult part. 
learning to let go of the songs and get them finished. In the dining area, Metallica's Brummy born tour manager Tony Smith is handing out cartons of takeaway Italian food, pasta and salad, and cold beers. Two big windows are framed with comedy Halloween lights, one a string of skulls, the other a line of little grinning orange pumpkins. A neon sign given to the band by their management firm Q Prime reads Rock Talica. In one corner is a makeshift bar stocked with bourbon, vodka, tequila and a mean looking Swiss cinnamon liqueur. On the walls are posters of Black Grape, Oasis and Metallica's favourite ice hockey team, the San Jose Sharks. It's a very relaxed scene. The only unsettling thing is the band's lack of hair. Jason took the lead three years ago by shaving his metal style locks right down to an inch of fuzz. He's now boasting a slick back Robert De Niro plays Greek waiter style. Kirk dabbled with dreads but settled on a short natural curl look. Lars showed off his bob at Donington last year and James has finally got rid of his mullet, recently lampooned by the Beastie Boys in their lifestyle mag Grand Royal, in favour of a short back and sides with quiff and huge sideies. Whoever thought Jason Newstead would again have the longest hair in Metallica. The fucking guy has lost again, James Gaffors. He thought he was happening and now he's the resident hippie. Hair's become so fucking useless to us. This is the shortest my hair's been since I was born. I think we all feel a lot more comfortable about not being so trapped in what bands uh, like us are supposed to look like, says Lars. We're a lot more confident than on the last record. Um, being at home has something to do with it and we're more comfortable with Bob Rock. We've been playing simpler groove stuff for five years. We started with Enter Sandman and Sad But True before that. Uh, we were still doing 10 minute jazz fusion songs. The word loose comes up a lot. To me it means we're trying not to get stuck into one thing. It's different, but it's still Metallica. 12 years ago, when we started opening up on Ride the Lightning with Fade to Black, a lot of people said, what the fuck is this about? And we said, we don't want to be stuck doing one thing. I know this album is different, Lars concludes, but I also know it's really fucking strong Metallica. With this strong new music and cool new attitude, Metallica begin one of their toughest challenges in the summer, headlining Lollapalooza 96. They're having great fun compiling the bill. Soundgarden are firm favourites for the next to top slot. Californian punks rancid are also in the frame. According to Lars, Oasis have turned down an offer to join Lollapalooza. It's a choker for Lars who loves Oasis. Country music legend Waylon Jennings is also up for a place on the festival bill. James is a huge country fan, although surprisingly, Waylon wasn't his suggestion, but Metallica co-manager Cliff Bernstein's. Kirk would like to see the ethereal cocktoo twins on the bill, or even grizzled British white reggae geezer Yarwobble. Metallica are certainly full of new ideas these days. It's what makes this new album their bravest and possibly their best. If anything, says Jason Newstead, it's groovy. Every song has its own vibe. The experimentation factor is higher than ever. The guitars and bass are definitely looser. For the first time, we're doing what 98% of other bands do. Putting the bass down right on the drums and then the guitar after that. Kirk is playing rhythm guitar for the first time also. That adds a lot to the character of it. The last album was great, but this one, he smiles, is a lot more real. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Lives, and the first concert that's reviewed this week is Sepultura, supported by Clutch and the LA2 London on Wednesday, February the 28th. This one is reviewed by Morat, and this gets 5 out of 5. The knot of anticipation tightens your stomach as the moment draws closer. More than anything, you've waited for this gig and it's nearly here. Sepultura and Clutch on the Terrorist Tour, laying waste to venues that sell out within an hour of tickets going on sale. After Sunday's fourth start, with Sepultura frontman Max Cavalera having been taken ill, it's finally upon us. 
I feel like a little kid waiting for the circus to come to town. The atmosphere is of course electric. The buzz outside in the street with tourists dodging us weirdos. The hubbub inside broken only by chance of sepultura, sepultura. And then Clutch finally kick it off with walking in the great shining path of your monster trucks. And we're all slamming. It's a good few years since we saw Clutch open for Biohazard. And if there's any criticism to be made of their set, it's only that they overindulge slightly with occasional stoner musical workouts. Twiddling when they could have knocked out Binge and Purge. Otherwise, Clutch are like a hardcore monster magnet on PCP. Frontman Neil Fallon barking out obscure lyrics about aliens, Marlon Brando and whiskey. Hell, this could only be better if Sepultura were up there with them. And would you believe it, Max and the boys joined them for a fierce rendition of a shotgun named Marcus. Oh yeah. Sepultura go off like a petrol bomb lobbed by the devil himself. It's sudden. One minute you're chatting and the next you're charging forward with the crowd as territory ignites. Or was it Slave New World? It sounds daft, but it was so exciting, I can't remember what they played first. Just that instant frenzy and the glow from Max's red hair as he growls like the Tasmanian devil he has tattooed on his arm. Put simply, Sepultura have more attitude than a dictionary containing only the word attitude. They kick more ass than the man with steel-toed boots being cruel to a donkey. They are astounding. It's no secret that Sepultura wanted these gigs to be special. The special that you only get maybe once or twice a year and talk about for the rest of your life. Tonight they achieved that in no uncertain terms. The set is perfect, ragged arsed and raging, but with magnificent clarity and featuring all the songs you'd pick yourself, from Spit to Biotech's Godzilla, through to Arise, Inner Self and even a ferocious cover of Discharges, Hear Nothing, See Nothing, Say Nothing. A nod must go to the bouncers too, for staying cool and not twatting any of the many bodies that came flying over the barrier. A perfect gig. Thank you, Sepultura. Next up we have Roof Roof live at the King's Cross Splash Club London on Friday February the 23rd. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan this one gets 4 out of 5. With his thick framed spectacles and constant facial spasms Roof Roof vocalist bassist Chris Kennedy is the epitome of punk rock geek cool. But amusing mannerisms alone do not a great punk band make. There is a small hour of spunky head slapping songs to consider. Fortunately this New York trio have no worries on that score as they come torn up with a clutch of the sharpest, shiniest and sunniest tunes this side of Green Day's Dookie, with the Splash Club completely sold out, we're primed for a memorable performance. One, two, three, four. Roof Roof whack out one whopping great tune after another in tonight's brief set. The tunes from their frazzled poptastic debut album Laughing Gallery get pumped up with steroids and happy pills in the live arena. The melodies more pronounced and guitars blunter. Thankfully, this toughening up does not diminish the fun quota. Chris Kennedy is an endearing frontman, his jerks, twitches and goofy grins offsetting the band's driving, uncluttered harmonies. Mission Idiot roars around with power chords flailing. New tune Brainiac is frantic and feisty and Don't Shut Me Out blazes by in a flurry of Dave Snyder's hyperactive drums and Mike Lustig's finely tuned riffs. Kennedy and guitarist um, Lustig pushing one another across the stage and locking heads like punk rock antelopes. They might just be enjoying this. Tune of the night is forthcoming single Uninvited, a gloriously defiant gate crash through moribund party land. Kennedy sneering, I'm uninvited but I'm coming anyway. The trio round a fine display off with a twin volume volleys of amnesia and uptight, fabulously infectious bursts of cartoon angst, pretend sneers and dayglow melody. Tangy, full flavoured and delicious bubblegum pop rock has rarely tasted better. 
The next review this week is for Smashing Pumpkins at the Kazar Pavilion, San Francisco on Wednesday, February the 7th. Reviewed by Stefan Chirazzi, this one gets 2 out of 5. Tonight was never going to be easy for the Smashing Pumpkins. To start off, they sauntered into San Francisco to play a couple of warm-up shows at a venue which hasn't seen a live show since The Clash played there in 1978. Acoustically, it was easy to see and hear why, and not even the poor pumpkin sound man stood a chance. Then, the Chicago superstars decided to play two sets, one electric, one acoustic. You need to be a special band to stand a chance in such an indulgent setting. And as Billy Corgan and co strummed and riffed their way through some melancholy moments, it just wasn't memorable. The rock set, one hoped, would kick it all out. But uh, their songs are about as personal demons. If they discuss pain and strife, the pumpkins just cannot give them a decent delivery live tonight. It's a second class stamp for first class songs. Zero, cherub rock, they passed like unwanted pests being hustled out the door. The shaven-headed Corgan didn't seem up for jump-starting the proceedings, running through the set with maximum energy conservation. Rumours abound that the Smashing Pumpkins will go their separate ways after this tour. On tonight's showing, that wouldn't be too much of a shock. They look detached from each other, a band running through the motions. Billy Corgan has the expression of a man who wants some new friends to play with. Here's hoping that tonight was down to rust and not lack of inspiration. And finally this week, the last concert reviewed is Guam at the Foundry Birmingham on Wednesday, February the 21st. Reviewed by Paul Travers, this gets 4 out of 5. Birmingham Foundry's stage is woefully inadequate for the full-blooded majesty of the Guam live assault. Yet despite the constraints of limited space, they manage, as always, to bloodily dispatch a string of characters in a variety of inventive ways. Ex-Grateful Dead frontman Jerry Garcia is hauled onto the stage, looking not at all grateful to be dead especially when his face is ripped off by front-thing odorous humongous aliens and slaves are also decapitated on a regular basis. By now, you've got the idea. Somebody somewhere thought that crossing noisy Poison Idea style hardcore with the grossest and tackiest of special effects was something of a good idea. And actually, it is. Gua goes so far beyond good taste that the boundaries are hardly visible. The police call in at one point, but while the audience resemble the clientele of the nightclub massacre scene in Hellraiser 3, no one leaves this show any more warped than they were when they entered. A Gua show is pure entertainment. Brain dead with loud guitars and songs. It's the grossest pantomime you're likely to see, and you're virtually guaranteed a seat to yourself on the train or the bus home. Next up in Kerrang, we have a piece entitled Indiana Holmes and the Lost Crusade. Paradise Lost's Nick Holmes is about to risk his life for a good cause. This month, the intrepid singer will try to ride a motorbike across the hazardous Australian outback to raise money for charity. Paul Brannigan waves him off. Paradise Lost frontman Nick Holmes is standing in a Bradford nightclub shooting the breeze with his mates. He's had a few drinks. He's talking about travel and adventure and excitement. He wakes up the next morning nursing the hangover and thinking that, all things considered, he'd had a top night on the tiles. Then, he remembers that he has committed himself to a potentially life-threatening trek across the Australian outback on a motorbike for charity. I was pissed up and I was saying to my friend that I wanted to go around the world on my bike because I've been to India and Thailand before and it was brilliant, explains Holmes. Someone said, why don't you do a decent run across the desert? I love riding bikes across hot countries. The climate in Yorkshire doesn't offer such a huge incentive uh, to get out and about. And this sounded like a bit of a challenge. The band were going to tour Australia anyway, so this gave me a perfect excuse. 
The whole thing has been organised really quickly so the chances of me perishing in the desert are even higher. How thoughtful. Holmes' 1500 mile journey will begin in the magnificently picturesque Ayers Rock, wind its way through miles of treacherous dusty roads to Alice Springs and culminate in Darwin in Northern Australia. He will be accompanied by faithful Paradise Lost soundman Martin. Kerrang photographer Ross Halfin will also be there to record the journey. He decided that some good should come out of this madcap venture and so after a few swift phone calls it was agreed that he would try to get some sponsorship in order to raise money for the Children with Leukemia Trust. In the past, CWL Charity has received help from celebrities from the world of sport, movies and music. Nick Holmes' bike ride will place him alongside musical patrons such as Who guitarist Pete Townsend, Pink Floyd's drummer Nick Mason and tartan-clad 70s teen sensations The Bay City Rollers. Fine company indeed. I'm glad we'll be able to help out someone less fortunate, Holmes considers. The money's going to a good cause and any suffering I endure will be well worth it. I know someone who died from leukemia, so it was the first charity I thought of. Obviously, any incurable disease is horrible, and those which affect small children are even worse. In the name of charity, Nick will confront certain hazards likely to leave less hardy souls in need of a swift change of underwear, or, more worryingly, a good undertaker. He is well aware of the dangers. We've been told that we'll be okay if we stick to the main roads, but if we stray from those, it'll mean certain death, reveals our intrepid hero. Dehydration is the main danger out there, but there's also a lot of dodgy insects about. I'll probably go to the post office and draw up my will before I go just to be on the safe side, but at the moment, I'm more worried about the length of the flight out. Brave words, lost bloke. Paradise Lost's record company Music for Nations have set up a special bank account for donations to Holmes's charity bike ride. A spokesperson for Music for Nations denied losing sleep over Holmes' potentially hazardous trip. We have every faith in Nick's ability and we know he will be back harassing us on the phone very soon, she insists. Provided Nick comes through his big adventure unscathed, he'll hook up with his Paradise Lost bandmates in Darwin for the start of their first Australian tour. We've uh, to do a gig the day after the ride and I'll probably not be able to stand up, he whines. I'll have to do the show from a chair. That will be entertaining. Next up in Kerrang! we have feedback. The letter of the week this week begins. Having attended countless rock gigs over many years, nothing has ever come close to ACDC with Bond Scott's presence on stage alongside Angus. Electrifying. That is... Nothing until I went to see a television gig in Liverpool last year. Without a doubt, they are going to be huge worldwide this year, not just in Britain. Their main asset is their ability to diversify their songs and not try right only in a certain style. You can't put their music into a particular category as they're not frightened of trying out heavy metal interspersed with a little jazz and rap. Just look at Pretend Best Friend. Plus, there's their knack of being able to write superb tunes such as Oblivion, Middleman and now Perseverance which blends in with some excellent in-your-face metal like Discotech Wreck and What Goes Around Comes Around. Their infectious enthusiasm on stage, coupled with their talent for writing great rock pop songs, will undoubtedly propel them up the ladder alongside the likes of Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses. Terrorvision, long may you rock, the 96 tour will leave us shaken, not stirred. Kevin Hendrick, Liverpool. Last night I saw Gua play at the Birmingham Foundry and they were fucking brilliant. About 20 seconds into the first song I was soaked in blood after some poor bloke got his head chopped off. After that it was a bloodbath of dead babies, arms, legs and aliens. 
The bad point was that the stage was just too small. Slymenstra Hyman demonstrated this when she swung a burning torch in Odorous's face and the crowd. What a bunch of boring arseholes. There were about 30 of us moshing and generally going mental when everyone else was just standing around in an orderly fashion. I didn't get back till 4 in the morning, but it was worth it. Long live Gua and death to the ones who tried to ban them. You will never succeed. Gua fan, Bromsgrove. I'm writing in to defend Britain's number one exported rock band of last year, Bush. They have been receiving unwarranted amounts of flack recently and I wish to put the record straight. Much as I admire the uh, Pumpkins, Presidents, Soundgarden, etc., I fear hypocrisy is rife here. What the hell have American bands been doing throughout the 70s and 80s? I believe they were being heavily influenced by British rock and punk. You shouldn't whinge on about Bush for being influenced by US bands. You should be proud that the trend has reversed. Bush are not a straight copy of Nirvana. Superficially, there is a resemblance, but if you look deeper, you will notice a more traditional songwriting bass and a hell of a lot more groove than Nirvana ever had. So, why aren't Bush more successful at home? I'm a huge rock fan and have been for more than half my life. I'm not into fads. I'm into quality rock and roll. 16 Stone is a quality album and it's not receiving the attention in the UK it deserves. Oi, record company pluggers, push Bush. They deserve your support. Lee Burrows, Watford. Thanks a fucking lot. On reading about the one-off UK Mr. Bungle gig at the LA2 on March the 7th, I rushed to the phone, sent money for the tickets to my pal in London, then put back the starting date of my new job for my trip to London. Yesterday, I spent 25 quid on a bus ticket and 15 quid on the new album Disco Volante. 10 minutes later, I find out they're playing Glasgow Cat House on the 5th at £6.30 a fucking ticket. And yes, I'm going to both gigs. Mad Buzz, Ayrshire. Our information was printed when the London show was the only one that had been announced. Other UK shows were added later. Editor. What the fuck is going on? Kerrang is supposed to be a cutting edge journalism for heavy metal, but now it's full of punk, grunge, Brit rock wannabes and any misdirected branch of guitar based music. Half the bands uh, featured would sue you if you called them metal. It's all very well to encourage the average headbanger to widen their musical horizons, but this has all gone too far. Our magazine has been subverted. Just look at Pandora for Christ's sakes. What's with the pigtails? I used to fancy her. Now she looks like Bjork. This country invented metal, and then our music industry stamped it out. Britain will never produce a Metallica because the powers that be won't let it happen. Radio 1 and Top of the Pops avoid metal and sneered down their noses at it. To make matters worse, we have actively promoted their stereotypes of us over the years, pulling the piss out of ourselves, taking nothing seriously. So let's look at today's sorry state of affairs. Bon Jovi and Iron Maiden have as much credibility as Mary Poppins. Does the world really need another Maiden album? Will I physically puke at the sound of another Jovi ballad? At the other end of the scale we have Metallica, who may tour a lot but have produced only two studio albums since Puppets. That's ten fucking years. I'll probably retire before the next one is released. New bands just don't seem to be making that big breakthrough. The Almighty blew me away when I found them, but obviously I'm in the minority. Paradise Lost may as well sell double glazing for all the support they get. Every year looks like being the last Donington. It's time to be proud of who we are, to rediscover your enthusiasm for what is the best music in the world. Adverse Camber from Aberdeen. I am the 15 year old schoolgirl in Tim Wheeler's dreams. Please give him my address. Rachel Parker, Sheffield. Ill communication. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Bruce Dickinson never stops. He's done the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll. He's fenced, flown and DJed. Now he's piloting his new band Skunk Works and he wants to kick shit out of you. Paul Brannigan tries to keep up.
Bruce Dickinson became one of the best known faces and voices in rock fronting Iron Maiden. But in 1993, after 11 years and 20 UK hit singles with the band, he jumped ship to embark upon a solo career. It was a courageous move, given the security and fame he already enjoyed, but Dickinson's third solo album, the just-released Skunk Works, proves that he's more than capable of scaling rock's heady heights once again. Let's face it, everything the man touches turns to gold. Radio 1 DJ, novelist, fencer, pilot, military advisor for Persia, possibly. Bruce has been a jack of all trades and master of most of them, actually. So what drives this remarkable man and how has he got to where he is today? Did you always want to be a singer? Initially, I wanted to be an actor, but I found out that I could sing, which was an even better because it allowed me to leap around on stage and have even less lines to learn. I figured that the fringe benefits would be more interesting too. What do you remember about your early musical activities? I remember practicing with one band in an old barn and getting complaints from local farmers because we were scaring their sheep. I also remember we had one Vox AC30 amplifier through which we fed two guitars, bass and vocals and it sounded like we were playing through a cement mixer. At college, I was in a band called Speed. We used to borrow the school minibus to get to gigs, rip the seats out to squeeze our gear in and then race back to college to get the bus back before anyone noticed it was missing. Those days were fun because no one took things too seriously. What were your first impressions of life as a professional musician? That sex, drugs and rock and roll were great. I did my first rehearsal with Samson immediately after doing my final college exam and it was a bizarre experience. Thunderstick, the drummer, was off his head. At one point, he fell off his drum stool and carried on playing even though he was only semi-conscious. I just thought, what the fuck have I got myself into? The next two years were hilarious, a total blur of chemicals. Then I got the call from Maiden and decided I'd better straighten myself out. Did it feel like the big time proper when you joined Maiden? Oh, definitely. I was walking into a band who were already a great success. The first gigs I did were in basketball arenas in Italy. It was 90 minutes of sheer terror, but fortunately, I came through it okay and never looked back. I can't really understand people who whine on about the pressures of fame. I've never had a problem with it at all. What were the financial rewards like at this point? When I joined Maiden, we were on a wage of 100 quid a week, which was a fortune for me because I'd been lucky to get 30 quid a week in Samson. I could actually rent a room in a house for the first time rather than just crashing on other people's floors. It was nice to be comfortable financially from then on. Did you find it a wrench leaving Iron Maiden? After I did Tattoo Millionaire in 1990, I did as much as I could to keep Maiden sounding fresh, but the time came to do something different. A rut can be a nice place to be if you're fulfilled, but that stopped being the case. I just felt that if I stayed for one more album, I'd be unhappy. Have you found it difficult to cast off the legacy of Maiden? At first I was like an adolescent trying to get away from his mum and dad. I didn't seem to be able to get out of the Maiden orbit for a while. Even Tears of the Dragon, which is my best known post-Maiden song, could have been written when I was still with the band. I can say that Skunk Works is different until I'm blue in the face and there will still be people who won't give a fuck because they just see me as that ex-Maiden bloke. It wasn't until Ozzy did Crazy Train that he stopped being ex-Sabbath vocalist and just became Ozzy Osbourne. I'm facing a similar challenge with Skunk Works, I think. How do you feel about being tagged Metal's Renaissance Man? It shows how few characters there are about in music now. I was trotting out as the presentable metaler because I didn't fit into people's ridiculous stereotype of what a rock musician is. 
The thing is though, no one ever wanted to talk about the music. It was Bruce Dickinson, fencer, writer, pilot, whatever, which got to be a bit annoying. The way I see it, you can shove your life full of alcohol or drugs or bimbos, or you can do something interesting. None of those things were ever meant to be alternative careers. The book, The Adventures of Lord Iffy Boat Race, was written out of boredom in 1985. It wasn't my fault that it sold 30,000 copies and I got paid to do a sequel. I just don't want people thinking that Skunk Works is some stupid little hobby. I'm not doing this for a joke. What have been the downsides of your career? I've got little to complain about. It's annoying to get shitty reviews and do bad gigs because of circumstances beyond your control. And if you didn't have panic attacks sometimes about what you do, then you'd be a robot, not a human being. But overall, I've had a great life, making music, traveling the world and meeting my heroes. Have you been hurt by criticism over the years? Obviously, everyone is entitled to their opinion, but I get a bit hot under the collar when someone just decides to criticize you to put a notch in their notebook. But no one is harder on stuff than I've done than me. If I was reviewing some of my stuff from the past, the paint would be peeling off the walls. I know now that I could do things better. How do you keep motivated as you effectively start out again? It's not a problem because I've still got a lot to prove. I feel as excited now as I did when I joined Maiden in 82. There is no one else doing what we do. Shoving a classic rock voice down the contemporary throat. This is real powerful rock and roll which will kick the shit out of you. I know that this record isn't going to go in at number one, but I honestly believe that it's as good an album for the 90s as Number of the Beast was for the 80s. When Joe Elliott did this feature, he said that if he had to do a solo career, he'd do it a hell of a lot better than you. I couldn't care less about Def Leppard. Joe Elliott, what a bastard. I could tell a few stories, but I won't. He should watch Pulp's Jarvis Cocker if he wants a few tips on being a singer from Sheffield with dignity. Singles, and just a reminder, if you would like to hear the singles of the week, then the Spotify playlist is available on the metadata for this podcast, if you look it out there, or if you go to our Twitter or Instagram page, I will post it there as well. So the singles this week are reviewed by Jason Arnop, and the first single reviewed this week is the Presidents of the United States of America with their single, Fuck California. This gets 4Ks. Clever bastards, these zany presidents. Not only have they squeezed eight words into their name, but they've been very successful with what are really just corny fuckabouts. This import is no exception. An amusing jumble of calming blues and athletic punk. Stupid Girl by Garbage. This gets 3Ks. Garbage. Fantastic band. Stupid Girl. Strange single. It works better as an album track with its leisurely bassline and laid-back feel. Sadly, the CD formats turn out to be essential for no one. The remix of the excellent Dog New Tricks makes a dog's dinner of its chorus, although New Tracks Driving Lesson and Alien Sex Fiend Broodingly Freaky add some incentive. FM, with their single Tattoo Needle, this gets 3Ks. Business as usual for the enduring melodic rockers who once supported Bon Jovi. Such heights are unlikely now, although they can still write an undemanding breezy rock tune or free. Undone by Stamping Ground. This gets 4Ks. This bunch aim to put the hard back into hardcore, and they do, unleashing a supremely heavy Kellogg's crunchy sound owing more to Crowbar than Fugazi. Like it. Hooten Free Car with their single Drone. This gets 2Ks. Capable Sunderland Melody Punk which doesn't quite gel. When it does, we'll all be sorry. Hum with their single stars. This gets 3Ks. 
Super dreamy A-side from this Illinois bunch, how Ash's girlfriend Miles would have sounded if they'd been on prescription drugs. Stars is a little ponderous, but at least manages to do the unexpected. Killing Joke with their single Democracy. This gets 4Ks. More remix overkill on the joke's big comeback, although at least the A-sides are cracker. Far less reliant on that concrete block guitar, Democracy still boasts a great groove and chorus. The Russian Tundra mix, however, is an 18-minute joke. Flaming Lips with their single This Here Giraffe. This gets 1K. More eccentric, can't sing, can't play meanderings, which might as well make more sense if the listener was on drugs. Great title, mind. What Tyler and Jay Church? Extra shite poos explosion. This gets 3Ks. Two punk bands, one British and one Californian. Both playing hearty punk chords, though Jay Church take the lead in the melody stakes. A neat package and not at all shite. And amongst all of those singles, the single of the week this week is Uninvited by Ruth Ruth. This gets 4Ks. No, it doesn't. It gets 5Ks. Excuse me. I gave this 3Ks a few months ago when it was originally released and have been chewing those words ever since. Uninvited grows and grows until it finally becomes a massive day glow Godzilla, an anthem for the lonely and left out. It strikes chords without any of grunges down a dirge. I'm uninvited. I'm coming anyway, yells Chris Kennedy. Fucking right. The last word. The ultimate questions on life, sex and death. This week, shelter frontman Ray Capo is put in the hot seat by Claire Douse. Last time you lost your temper. I got into a big fight with everybody on our last tour. Somebody in the band wasn't happy with the way I was running things. But they didn't tell me to my face. They told other people. And that's what really got me upset. So I just got everybody into the room and gave them a 20 minute lecture. Boy, I definitely was angry. Last time you played a sport, I love to kickbox. I'm not very good at it though, and I do yoga every day. That's not part of the Krishna thing. I actually do that for exercise. Last time you voted, I never voted. I just thought it would be like voting for an arse or a donkey. One choice is bad and the other is even worse. Last time you were in court, I've never been in court. I've been close though. I rollerblade when I'm at home, but there are a lot of places where you're not supposed to do it, like in the subway. There's a $100 fine for it. Right before the tour, I was in Manhattan on the subway and I wore my blades downstairs. Of course, as soon as I got down the stairs, there were seven cops there. I was about to get on my train when I hear, hey you, and they all surrounded me. And suddenly one of them goes, you're the guy from Shelter. We love you guys. They all hopped on the train with me and asked me questions about Shelter until I got off. Last time you heard a good joke. Why don't Krishnas eat chicken? Because they've got eggs in them. I've got a whole load of Krishna jokes because my lyrics are a little grave. People think I have no sense of humour, but in high school, I was the class clown. Last time you were embarrassed. When I first became a Krishna devotee about seven years ago, I was out in my orange robes on the way to the studio to produce the first Shelter single. Who should I run into in the street but Vinny Stigma of Agnostic Front, who I've known for years. He just yelled out, Ray Capo, what the hell are you doing in a dress? What happened to a good Italian boy like you? What's your mother got to say about this? That was embarrassing. Last time you read a book, the last one I finished was about time management, how to live in this world and still have integrity because you prioritise what's important. I also just read King Lear, which is one of my favourites ever. Last film you saw? Probably a Woody Allen film, though I haven't been to the cinema in seven years. When I first became a Krishna, I made a personal vow not to go. It was so I didn't get distracted by outside things. Last time you punched someone? In Belgium, when I was on tour with you for today. 
There was a guy there who was spitting at me on stage, so I jumped into the crowd and got right in his face. After the show, I walked into the bar, which was just full of all these huge metal guys, including this guy. He just looked at me and growled, hey, straight edge, and poured his beer over my head, and then 15 people punched me at once. I just launched at his face with a flying kick, but there was beer all over the floor, so I slipped over and landed right on my back. I have such a big mouth. Last time you cried. I cry all the time. Hey, I'm a sensitive guy. Last time you had a day job. Eight years ago, I was a waiter in a vegetarian restaurant. Last time you ate meat. I was 18. I didn't start being vegetarian until I moved out of my parents' house. I was driving away from the house and thought, I have to have a hot dog one more time. So I bought a chili dog, which is my favourite thing in the world. Last time you were ripped off. A guy stole my sneakers on the subway once. He just got out a knife and said, give me your sneakers. Of course, I complied. I had to walk home barefoot through the streets of Brooklyn. Last time you stage dived. We just played with Siv in New York and I did a great stage dive. They were playing Can't Wait One Minute More and they had me come up and sing it with them. Then I threw myself off the stage. Last time you prayed. Yesterday, when our song came on the radio, I said a quick prayer to myself. May success not destroy my spiritual life. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. Albums. And the album of the week this week is Regular Urban Survivors by Terrorvision. Reviewed by Paul Elliott, he gives this one 5Ks. Didn't you just know that Terrorvision would supply the top buzz of 1996? Okay, so it's only March, but Regular Urban Survivors will take some beating. Last month, Kerrang hyped the arrival of Britrock. You know, like Britpop with balls. Rock or punk with the added rush of sharp pop sus. Most of it banged out in three minutes or less. And of Britrock's brightest stars, The Wild Hearts, Ash, Skunk and Nancy, Honeycrack, The Usual Suspects, none do it better than Terrorvision. Just as Britpop is shorthand for music as diverse as Oasis and Blur, so Britrock can't be defined by one band. But if anybody wants to know what's so exciting about Britrock, all they have to do is pick up a copy of Regular Urban Survivors. It's wicked. You thought you knew everything about Terrorvision after Oblivion and Pretend Best Friend. Think again. This album is full of surprises. Full of depth too, and loaded with great songs. Here is your soundtrack to the summer of 96. Only Terrorvision would parody James Bond for an album cover. Most bands are anxious about their image or lack of it. Terrorvision are taking the piss, and why not? Four Larry Geezers from Bradford, they look the business in suits, waving guns about, especially drummer Shutty, who has a smart bird clinging to his left leg. Fittingly, Terrorvision's new is every bit as thrilling, outrageous and tongue-in-cheek as the curtain-raising stunt in the latest 007 caper Goldeneye. The bit where Bond skydives off the top of a giant dam and swoops into the cockpit of an out-of-control plane before pulling it out of a nosedive and flying off cool as you like. That's Terrorvision in a soundbite. One part sweat to two part style. In terms of potential chart action, this LP is absolutely chock full of it. The top tunes are Hide the Dead Girl, Celebrity Hit List and of course current hit single Perseverance. And just when you thought there was nothing here as blatantly goofball as Oblivion, it pops the 13th uh, and final track, Mugwump. It's ridiculous. Title topped only by a chorus of yippee Silly, but it works. Terrorvision's third album is also their best and their most eccentric. Maybe something rubbed off on them when they mixed the album uh, The Beatles' Old Gaff Abbey Road because everywhere there are great pop hooks and touches of mad genius. Regular Urban Survivors is a regular box of tricks. Easy, flits between mean riff and quaint pop. Slinky opener, enter alter ego. 
uh, caps the chorus with a trumpet and dog chewed the handle goes one better by using a pheromone, as heard on the Star Trek theme, to exaggerate its comically spooky mystery vibe. Smart, loud, funny and mad for it. This is Terravision at their super cool best. The perfect Brit rock noise. The Americans still might not get it, but regular Urban Survivors is probably the best fun you'll have all year. Next up we have the album Twisted Willy by Various, reviewed by Liam Shiles. This gets 4Ks. Everyone from Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson and Waylon Jennings to Super Suckers, Steel Pole Bathtub and Jello Biafra join forces here to pay tribute to renegade country legend Willie Nelson, the man who single-handedly threw rock and country music together back in the early 70s and in doing so blazed a trail for many people that got a lot more famous than he ever did for doing it first. Nelson has always been regarded as an outlaw performer, never truly accepted by a rock mainstream suspicious of country music's redneck underbelly and loathed by the hicks who couldn't stomach his long hair and anti-establishment views. Fittingly, Twisted Willy is a brave attempt to take in the range of Nelson's influence on the open-minded from every tradition by rounding up artists that share his maverick philosophy rather than his country rock sound. Like all compilations, this one is patchier than Chris Robinson's flares. But although the clash of styles is at first disconcerting, it's ultimately Twisted Willie's greatest delight. The country plucking of Waylon Jennings and Jesse Dayton stands shoulder to shoulder with Gas Hover's cascading chords and the pseudo new wave of X. Super Suckers and the Reverend Horton Heat kick up a latter day Jason and the Scorchers vibe while Screaming Trees' Mark Lanigan plays it straight, adding just his doleful voice and a weeping solo fiddle to She's Not For You. L7 turned their refola onto one of Nelson's best-known tunes, Three Days, and the presidents of the United States of America do something similar to Devil in a Sleeping Bag by shoving a guitar-fueled rocket up its backside. But it's the remarkably heavy Time of the Preacher by the original Man in Black Johnny Cash that gives Twisted Willie its majestic highlight. Whatever these artists throw at them, Nelson's songs are durable enough to absorb the impact and shine for their simplicity, humanity, and avoidance of the conservative sentiment that blights so many of his peers. The next album reviewed this week is Sparkle and Fade by Everclear, reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this gets 4Ks. The story so far, three-piece group from America's Northwest fronted by blonde lead singer record debut album for next to nothing, get signed to a major label, gig incessantly and draw a huge audience for their songs of pain, anger and confusion. Sounds familiar? It should do. It's the story of Nirvana, and it's also the story of Everclear, the latest rock group to tear up the American charts. The Nirvana comparison is a bit obvious and unfair, but not since Kurt Cobain's trio has a band made such a basic formula so affecting, passionate and strong. Everclear's debut World of Noise is probably the greatest debut album you've never heard, an intense, nervy bundle of soul-wrenching anthems. Sparkle and Fate is even better. The tunes are simple and direct, the lyrics confessional, naked and vulnerable. Like Kurt Cobain, Everclear's Art Alexicus is a tremendous frontman wielding a dangerously addictive guitar and a sack full of deliciously bruised melodies. Art is a true survivor, the kid from the wrong side of the tracks who has tasted much personal tragedy en route to the US Top 30. Yet, there is no sense of Art as a victim. Every song is uplifting and defiant. A hoarse shout of, do your worst, pal. Sparkle and Fade is set amidst the twitching curtains and whispered innuendo of small-town America. The songs flip between punk, grunge and electric folk rock. 
united through Art's hoarse, aching vocals and raw cutting guitar. Often, the tunes consist of just a couple of riffs, but the band's inspired dynamism keeps everything fresh and powerful. Greg Eklund's super-fired drumming gives the elastic riffing of the twist inside and the Pixies-esque adrenaline shot, chemical smile, irresistible momentum. While Heartspark dollar sign gives Art and bassist Craig Montoya the opportunity to throw bouncing guitar harmonies at one another. Whether whispering or roaring, these songs are wired straight to your heart. Lyrically, this is an amazingly wide open album. Heroin Girl recounts the tragic tale of a dead lover. Just another overdose to a callous policeman. Pale Green Stars smothered in open-mouthed electric kisses is a tale of a crumbling relationship, rendered in such poignant terms that you feel embarrassed for intruding upon the pain. Strawberry is a stark acoustic strum, Art relating his descent into a drug's hell with the simple admission, yes, I guess I fucked up again. Santa Monica and Summerland revived the great American New Frontier tradition, our heroes shaking the past dust from their feet and driving off into the sunset yearning for a brighter tomorrow. And for Everclear, the future will be dazzling. Sparkle and Fade is a beautiful, slamming and stirring album. And the last album reviewed this week is All Scratched Up by Down By Law. This gets 2Ks and is reviewed by Meanie. You can imagine Dave Smalley listening to Sham 69's If The Kids Are United as a teenager and pledging to make this his mission in life. The guy has been in more punk bands than most of us have had hot dinners. But whereas Rancid seem to have tongues planted firmly in cheeks, Smalley's sense of irony has gone AWOL. This guarantees passion in Down By Law's delivery, but one gets the feeling here that the man's a bit of a buffoon. Not the best of vibes. Charts and number one in the album's chart this week, unsurprisingly, is Roots by Sepultura. Number one in the singles chart is Perseverance Terrorvision. And number one in the indie LPs chart is Roots by Sepultura. The reader's top 10 this week comes from Jason Trigor from Basingstoke. Their chart begins one week, Skunk and Nancy. Two, Carry On Abroad, Who Moved the Ground. Three, Crumble, Gink. Four, Diane Therapy. Five, Free Calls to Heaven, Apocalypse Babies. 6 Greed Killing, Napalm Death, 7 Stuck With Me Green Day, 8 Trailer Ash, 9 Beast Inside Freaks of the Siren, 10 Sitting At Home, Honeycrack. Star tracks this week come from Lars Ulrich from Metallica. His chart begins 1 To Bring You My Love, PJ Harvey, 2 It's Great When You're Straight, Yeah, Black Grape, 3 Marky Moon Television, 4 Alice in Chains, Alice in Chains, and 5 Common People by Pulp. Next week in Kerrang Back Issues, The Return of the Wild Hearts, I Got My Head Together in Thailand. Ginger, back from the brink, the first interview of 1996. Metallica, why we nearly split up. Terrorvision, booze, coppers and shatty's pink panther suit. Plus Girls Against Boys, Soundgarden, Silverchair, Pearl Jam, Offspring, Almighty, Skin and Ash. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday as usual. I look forward to uh, doing this podcast then and uh, you all hearing it. (laughs) I never know what to say sometimes at the end. I feel like I've said... Uh, the same thing for about three years anyway uh, it was fun this week I really enjoyed that one a nice Metallica interview anyway we'll be back next Wednesday as usual I've already said that bye for now